If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. This morning we're going to wrap up our time in Ezekiel. We are almost to the end of the major prophets in, our, in the Big Story series. And next Sunday is going to kick off my favorite time of the year. It's going to be Advent. And so the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be looking at Advent. And we're going to specifically look at why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. So I hope you'll invite someone to be a part of that. Sometimes people are a little more open this time of year. And I hope that you'll be a part. Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll read the first 14 verses together. God's word says, The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and Breathe on these slain that they might live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. Can we pray together this morning? Heavenly Father, this morning, many of us feel like nothing more than bones, very dried bones. And we can identify with the question of Israel, oh Lord, my bones are dry, what hope do I have? I pray this morning that you would breathe life into us. I pray this morning that we would encounter the spirit of the living God. I pray this morning that the, that the power of your word would arrest us and call us toward life. I pray that, Lord, this morning that we would see that Jesus' way is not just right. Jesus' way is better. I pray that my people, Lord, would experience what Ezekiel experienced all those years ago. As he saw the power of your spirit moving through your word. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The leading cause of death among teenagers is motor vehicle accidents. Did you know that a teenager is three times more likely to die as a result result of an automobile accident 
than someone who is 20 years old and older. And out of the fatalities of teenage, out of the teenage fatalities as a result of motor vehicle accidents, did you know that 29% of them are alcohol related? And despite going and hearing their parents talk about it, and despite hearing the people at school and the presentation at school talk about it, and despite knowing that people that are their age are, are dying, perhaps even someone they know, did you know that out of the teenagers that were polled, 17% of them acknowledged that they had ridden some, with someone who was intoxicated within the last 30 days? Not last year. Within the last 30 days. You know, it's the adolescent reflex to believe it won't happen to me, isn't it? It's the adolescent reflex to believe that I'm above the, the laws of nature and cause and effect will have no effect on me. So when I was in school, and some of you will remember this, when, when I was in school, what they would do, especially the week of prom, is they would, they would take a car that had been in a fatal accident. And they would go and they would park it on the football field so that every day we had to walk past it and every day we had to look at it all week long leading up to prom. And on the Friday before prom, they would gather the whole student body in the football stadium for an assembly. And they would begin to tell us the story of the person who had died in the car accident. They would have a, a mom there often crying and, and explaining the, the agony that she had experienced because of the loss of someone, that she lo- a child that she loved as a result. And the intention was to take what we knew and cause us to experience. The, 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 the intent was to take the reality and the gravity of the situation and to present it to us in such a way that it would pierce us so that we would actually respond to it. Because our inclination is to let it go in one ear and out the next. What we have here in Ezekiel chapter 37 is God walking Ezekiel through the wreckage of Israel. That Israel at the hands of Babylon had been decimated. And so what God does is he takes his prophet and he brings him into a valley of dry bones. A valley filled with skeletons. Skeletons that were the result of the battle and the fight against Babylon where so many of his people had been destroyed. And the difference between what we experienced in high school and what Ezekiel was experiencing that day is that day it was not foe. That day it was not hypothetical. That day it was not potential. He was walking among literal bones, people that he had known, people that he knew had come to their end as a result. The recognition, the recognition would have been that these bones were their fault. That this was the bed that we have made. This is the valley that we have dug. And our way has led ultimately to death. So God brings the prophet that he can see the, the power and the, and the pain of death. But that's not all that he's doing. He's bringing him into the valley of dry bones. Not just so that he can see the death. But so that he can show the prophet that from death God can bring glory. That what we're supposed to see is that sin leads to skeletons. That sin leads to skeletons. It was true then and it's true now. At the end of World War II, the Allies recognized that they had to get the buy-in of the German people to ensure that it wouldn't repeat itself. We'd already had World War I, here we are in World War II. The atrocities and the evil was on a scale that was previously believed to be unimaginable. So the Allies recognized they had to do something. Something like parking a a wrecked car in the middle of the football field that would cause the the German people to be shocked into reality. So what they did 
As everyone who was able and everyone who was within walking distance, the allies marched them to the concentration camps. And they made them look at the furnaces that had incinerated all of the bodies that had led to the smoke that had filled the sky all those days. They forced them to see the piles of shoes of all those who had died and been murdered by the evil that had become normalized in their society. Evil that for the average German person was out of sight and out of mind. For those that were unable to, to walk or to make the journey to the concentration camps or live too far away, they, they compelled them to go into theaters and watch it on a film. And they would watch as they would see men and women, children who just looked like bags of bones as a result of their mistreatment. They would show them the, the furnaces and they would show them the ashes and they would show them in moving picture what the atrocities had, what atrocities had taken place. And the message was simple enough. It was twofold. On one hand, they were saying, you're responsible for this. You're responsible for this. You allowed a government that would do this. You allowed your government to cover, carry out such evil. And the second part was, and you're responsible to make sure it never happens again. You're responsible to make sure it never happens again. And there's something of that that's happening in Ezekiel 37 as God marches Ezekiel to and fro, it says, across this valley of dry bones, across this valley of, of judgment, across this valley of skeletons. He is saying to the prophet, you, you are responsible. The people are responsible and you are responsible to make sure that it doesn't happen again. And there he's showing him, he's showing him the consequences of their actions. That they're marching to and fro, back and forth. Ezekiel is able to see the consequences of the actions that his people had taken. The consequences of their disobedience. You see, it's not just adolescents that have the impulse that I can get away with it, is it? It's, it's not just the adolescent impulse to say that I'm the exception to the rule. Now, granted, you know, as we get older, we're a little less likely to go cave diving or, or cliff hanging or drive recklessly. We, we usually slow down a little bit physically. Oh, but spiritually, spiritually we certain, certainly believe this. We, we, we always think, yeah, 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 but, but it's not that bad in my life. <laughs> I, I know what God has said about anger, and I know what God has said about forgiveness, and I know what God has said about arrogance, and I know what God has said about, about, uh, about materialism, and I know what God has said about greed, and I know what God has said about pornography. I know, I know. The preacher tells me, and the Bible tells me that none of these are good, and all these things are harmful, and all these things will lead to death. But it's not that bad in my life. It's not that big a deal in my life. That in other words, what we're saying is I know the statistics, I know what is true, and yet I choose to believe that cause and effect has no bearing on me, that my actions will have no consequences in my life. That's what we're getting at. That when Ezekiel is marched out, he is shown the extent of the damage that has come. Notice there what it says. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and he set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. That is bodies, disfigured, dismembered, faceless, nameless bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were what? Very many on the surface of the valley. And they were very dry. In other words, what he's wanting to see is that this wasn't just a little problem. And this hasn't just brought little consequences. That those things in which you thought you were an exception to the rule, those, those moments in which you believed that, that nothing would happen to you, that you defied them. And having defied them, it has left, led to great carnage in your lives 
and among your people. The, the inclination is that many people have died, and even those, because they are very dry, even those that have survived it were taking off, taken off into Babylon so frantically that they couldn't even care for their dead. An a, a unimaginable thought for people of God. But over and over, what the big story has shown us, isn't it? That over and over, God had sent prophets and God had sent preachers and he had told them to turn back and he had told them to come back to him and to obey him and to listen to his word. But over and again, his people had refused to believe in cause and effect. His people had refused to believe in sin and consequences, decisions and consequences. And they had lived as though they were adolescents and they were above all the rules. I wonder if you've experienced carnage because of the same thing. I wonder if you feel the bones drying out within you because of the same reality. But it's not enough that we see this, that this is the consequences of their actions. And it wasn't enough for Ezekiel to see this. There's something bigger in play. He doesn't just see that it's the consequences of their actions. He sees that it's the judgment of their God. That they would have understood in a way that would be helpful for us to understand in terms of theologically. That, that in other words, what's in picture here is not just some mechanism of the universe to give back good to good and bad to bad. This isn't a karma type situation. That this is personal. That they had brought personal offense to God and God was personally answering that that what they are experiencing is not merely sowing and reaping it is also disobedience and wrath in other words what they had lived in defiance of is they had believed they had disbelieved that god would keep his word remember god had chosen his people God had chosen his people because he loved them. He, he chose his people and he told them, I will bless you and prosper you and protect you. I, I will make sure that you're provided for. All you have to do is just love me and me alone. If you will follow after me and forget and abandon all the gods of the world that are promising you freedom and promising you, promising you greater happiness and deeper pleasure and better protection. If you will just trust that I am the source for everything that you need in your life, I will make sure that you are blessed. And no sooner do they make the covenant, no sooner does Moses come down off the, off the mountain that they've already created the golden calf. And God had told them, God had told them, Deuteronomy chapter 20, I have it there on the screen, that if you disobey, if you disbelieve what I'm telling you, if you don't think that I will keep my word, then you're storing up for you judgment because I will not tolerate my own people spitting in my face. Listen to what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. It's the reverse of what God had promised them, right? You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to the kingdoms of the earth. Now, were they supposed to be a horror? No, they were supposed to be what? A blessing to the nations of the earth, not a horror before the nations of the earth, to all the kings of the earth. And your what? Your dead body shall be what? Food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. That I won't be there to run off the buzzards when they come to pick your bones clean. And there is Ezekiel in the middle of a valley. And these words must have echoed in his head. He's looking around and there's a torso over here and a femur over there and a skull over here. And he has no idea what belongs to whom because the beasts and the birds have picked them clean. Certainly the judgment of God had fallen upon his people. They had spat upon him and spat upon him and now there was an, a valley filled with their bones. Can you imagine how, God's, how heavily God's justice must have weighed upon Ezekiel in that moment? Can you imagine how heavily the sin of his people must have weighed upon Ezekiel in that moment? Can you imagine how heavy his own sin must have felt? 
See, every skeleton in that field was representative of a promise, of a, a lie, a false promise that the people of God had believed. You know why they chased after other gods? Because they offered them more freedom. They chased after other gods because they offered them more money. They chased after other gods because they, they wanted to find a way other than the way of God. They wanted to be able to assert their will. And they believed that another God would keep them safer. That another God would give them a bigger paycheck. That another God would give them greater satisfaction and contentment in their lives. And so they ran after them even though God was saying, I love you. I'm, your, I'm with you. I'm your people. I want to bless you. And they said, God, your blessing's not enough. We want all the gods. And the result was ultimately they got what they asked for. Brothers and sisters, I bet if you look in your life, you can find skeletons there. And I bet as you look at your life and find the skeletons that define your life, that you would have to say that most of them are the result of false promises and lies that you've come to believe. Perhaps you are like Israel and you yourself feel like a, a skeleton. And as you think back through the inventory of your life and all the secrets from all the sin that you're, you're, you're carrying forward, you have to run home to a bottle of wine. You have to run home to a virtual world just to try to cover the stench of death that hangs over your life. How's the relationship that you have with your kids? How's the relationship that you have with your parents? How's your relationship with your long-term friends? How's your relationship with the Lord? Do you look around and see skeletons everywhere? Can you identify with the key, the interpretive key of Ezekiel 37 when the people say, Son of man, these bones are the whole house. Behold, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Is that how you feel this morning? Sin always leads to skeletons, but do you know what skeletons need if you feel that way? This isn't a hopeless passage, this is a hopeful passage. Skeletons require resurrection. Skeletons require resurrection. There's a poignant question, a poignant question that's at the center of our text. There in verse 3, look at what it says. And he said to me, now this is God talking to the prophet. So this is a question that God asks of his prophet. He says, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Now that's interesting, isn't it? And I love Ezekiel's question. So here he is, he's sitting down. He's, he's went to and fro, now God has sat him down. He's looking over a valley of bones, bones that would have caused the justice of God to fall heavily upon him, the, the reality of his own sin to rest heavily upon him. It is a somber, solemn moment. And sitting there, in the midst of what appears to be despair and hopelessness, God asks the question, is it over for the bones? Can the bones have another life? Can the bones be raised? And I love how Ezekiel responds. Ezekiel doesn't say, well, I don't know. Ezekiel doesn't say no emphatically. He doesn't say yes emphatically. He kind of hovers down the line, right? Like he says, oh, Lord, God, you know. You know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a wonderful answer. Because first of all, when God comes to you, and Ezekiel was smart enough to recognize this, when God asks you, can, the answer is always yes. Because the refrain of the Bible is that everything with God is possible. That nothing is impossible with him. So when God comes to you and, and God says, can this happen? The only answer is to say, well God, if you do it, it can happen. If you do it, you can happen. And some of you need to hear that. Some of you need that. Your relationship with your kids can be repaired because God can do it. You can't overcome cancer because God can do it. You can overcome the trauma of an abusive childhood because God can do it. God can do it. 
When God comes and asks you, can it happen? The question, the answer is always, yeah, it can. The only question really is, is are you willing, Lord? Are you willing, Lord? And so by, by threading the needle, what Ezekiel is doing is he's drawing out this thought of God by saying, God, I know you can, but will you? Will you? And the very reason, the very reason that God is asking the question is because he is willing. Because he wants to tell his prophet and he wants his prophet to tell his exiled, miserable, dried up, hopeless people that they can live again. Not only can they live again, God is willing for them to live again. And so they will, in fact, live again. That God is showing Ezekiel how he's going to raise these bones up. And the interesting thing is, is as we go to the New Testament, it's the same means by which he raises and resurrects bones and dead people like you and me today. That what we see is that bones need God's word. Can I have a word with you? That's been the theme of the series. And what we've seen over and over is God comes to Ezekiel and says, I have a word for my people. I, I want to have a word for them because why? I want to bring life to them. I want to bring life to my people. I want to give hope to my people. And so he comes in here and, and he says something very interesting. It's, it's a strange command. He says, prophesy. You know, we think of that as preaching, right? Preach over these bones. Now that's a strange assignment, okay? Every pastor knows what it's like to have the music minister sleep through his sermon, okay? Amen, right? Saw that coming, didn't you? Snuck it right in there. Every pastor knows what it's like to have the music minister sleep through a sermon. But y'all, they are dead dead. Like, they are deader than backslidden Episcopalian dead. And God says, here in a land filled with skulls and bones, go to the skeletons and preach to them. Now, why would he say that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he's reversing how they got into this condition to start with. How did they end up as skeletons? How did they end up in the valley? How did they get there? They got there by neglecting the word of God, by disobeying the word of God, by disbelieving the word of God. God said, if you will follow me, obey me, go my way, I will prosper and I bless you. If you depart from me, you will experience judgment and destruction. And God sent preacher after preacher over and again to say, look, I'm being patient with you. Come back to me. Come back to me. Destruction is coming, coming back. And they continued to live in defiance against him. And so God is saying, you found death by disobeying the word, but you're going to find life by hearing the word. You're going to find life by hearing the word. And so it's a call here for his people to reverse course and to repent and to come to him because the way that they're pursuing is not working. Can I ask, is your way working? Is life, the way that you're living, is it working? Is it leading to a more satisfying life? Has the promises of freedom, have they really proven to be true? Has the pornography really led to deeper pleasure or more problems? Like what's going on in your life? There's a place here for us to say, God, you're speaking to me. Because you want to talk to me. You're speaking to me. Because you're good. And that brings us to the second purpose. Is it's talking about the power for which God, how God gives life. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 is not all that different from Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, we have a lifeless, we have a lifeless valley. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, what does it say? The spirit is hovering over the deep. That there is nothing but darkness and depth. Everywhere that you look, there is vastness, there is darkness, there is no life. What interrupts the vastness? What interrupts the darkness? And 
God said. And God said, and the light interrupts the darkness. And God said, and the skies and the sea are separate. And God said, and the fish are in the sea, and the birds are in the air. And God said, and things are creeping and crawling all over the face of the earth. And God said, and the man and the woman were made from the dirt of the earth. That life and power came to the person by the same means that the galaxies were flung into the sky. By the word of God. By the life-giving, life-breathing, powerful word of the living God. And he's saying, that's how these bones are going to live again? That the means by which I made the earth is the means by which I will recreate the earth. The means by which I will recreate the man. By which I will regenerate them and make them into somebody new. A new creation, Paul calls it. You know, we think sometimes, why should I drag my teenager into the church? (laughs) They don't want to come. They're just going to come in one ear and out the other. Why should I come when I don't really feel like it? When I've got a thousand things going on and this deadline is pressing in on me and my kids need breakfast. and Why should I take time out of the day and sit down and read a book that was written thousands of years ago that half the time I have trouble understanding even what it means? Because it's an offering of faith. Because it's not just about some words on a page in a book. It's the power by which God breathes life. What your teenager needs is to hear from the word that interrupted the darkness and flung the galaxies. What your dead soul needs is the same thing that Lazarus heard when Jesus cried out and said, Lazarus, come forth. It's the word of God that brings life. It's the word of God that transforms us. And so what he's showing to Ezekiel and what he's showing to us is that dead bones need God's word. So go and preach to the dead bones. But that's not all they need. The bones begin to rattle. It's such an incredible scene, isn't it? The the earth is shaking and the bones are rattling together and the, the mayhem is becoming even more chaotic than it was already. And there stands before them an a reconfigured person, a reconfigured army, it says. But it's not yet animated. It's not yet alive. That it has been formed and it has been fashioned, but it has not been brought to light because there's something yet missing. And it takes us into Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God forms the man from the dirt of the earth and there stands the configured man, right? Not yet alive though. How does he receive life? What does God do? In an intimate relationship. He doesn't do this with any other part of creation. But to show the intimate relationship that the living almighty God has with humankind, he takes the man and he breathes into his nostrils so that he is animated with the life of an image bearer of almighty God, animated with a soul, animated with the ability to love and to think and to do, animated with a, in such a way that would enable that man to bring glory to God in a way that no other creature on earth can bring glory to God. He blows into him life, right? Now what's the context of Ezekiel chapter 37? The context of Ezekiel chapter 37 is Ezekiel chapter 36. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago. It's talking about the new covenant. And what does God say is going to happen in the new covenant? He says, I'm going to take that heart of stone out of you. I'm going to put a heart of flesh. Then I'm going to place within you what? My spirit. 
I'm going to place my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. That before you could not keep the word, the word was death to you. The old covenant led to a valley of bones. But the new covenant, I'm going to put my spirit within you. Now you will be able to obey me. You will be able to be holy. And I'm going to reanimate that which was put to death. I'm going to resurrect that valley of dry bones so that now, now my people are an army standing strong, shoulder to shoulder. They're impenetrable and unassailable. That what God is doing is he's showing us what it's going to look like to experience the new covenant. That he is going to breathe life into his people. In fact, breath is one of the primary themes of the new covenant, of chapter 37. If you go and you look at breath, especially in verse 9, I think is really the, he says, prophesy to the breath. So talk to the breath. Now what's it? If you look at the Hebrew, the word there is ruach, right? Very hard to pronounce. I can't do it very well. In Hebrew, it can mean spirit. It can mean wind. It can mean breath. All translate the same. If you go back to Genesis 1-1, it says it's the wind is hovering over the deep. It's the, it's the breath is hovering over the deep. It's the spirit that's hovering over the deep. So the idea here, the idea here is that God is going to blow into his people. And by doing that, he's going to animate them not with just life that's going to be like what they had before, but with something new, with a new nature, with his own spirit dwelling within them. And there's a dual fulfillment. Remember how we talked about this throughout the scriptures? That the prophets often preach with a split screen, right? That in one sense they're fulfilling something immediate, and in another sense they're, they're preaching about something that will be fulfilled a long time ago that maybe they're not even fully aware of. So in the, immediate, in the immediate, what's going to happen is we know King Cyrus is going to come. He's going to issue a decree. The people of God are going to be able to go back to the promised land. That's what he's saying is going to happen. It's going to happen. God is going to deliver his people from Babylon. It seems hopeless. It seems impossible. It's going to happen because God is able. They're going to come home. We're going to see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. We're going to see all this, right? But what else is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to raise up a people. I'm going to raise up a people. That will not be confined to a geopolitical border. I'm going to raise up a people that you can't aim a missile at. I'm going to raise up a people that's going to be an unassailable, impenetrable army. That is going to be filled with my very power, my very discipline, my very glory. I'm going to raise up temples all across this globe. From every corner of the four corners of the globe. Because that's where my spirit goes. In fact, this is fulfilled directly in John chapter 20 in the passage that I read to kick off the service. Look at what it says. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, what did he do? What did he do? He breathed on them. This is Genesis 2. This is Ezekiel 37. This is happening again. Here is Jesus after the resurrection. He walks through the walls to find all of his disciples cowered down and afraid of the Jews. He goes in there and says, what are you so afraid of? Why are you not at peace? Oh, you need the spirit. You need to be made fully and forever alive. And so... Just like Genesis chapter 2, Jesus breathes onto his disciples and he reanimates them. And what do they become? 
those cowards stand down the Sanhedrin so that the Sanhedrin says, how can these common, uneducated men talk to us the way that they're talking? They would go to prison and sing there. They would march across the globe and make disciples all across the globe. Church, do you understand? That's who we are. That's who we are. We are not the cowardly little church afraid of the culture. We are not the cowardly little Christians afraid of our own shadow. We are the blood-bought, Christ-purchased, resurrected, spirit-filled army of the living God. That's who we are. That is, we are the ones that have been resurrected from the valley of death. How on earth, how on earth can we do anything but be filled with joy? See, the resurrected live a new life. There's something I've experienced and many of you have experienced. That is that when you have a near-death experience, it changes you forever. It changes the way that you see it. It's like wearing a pair of glasses and everything that you saw before, you see now, but you see it differently. You, you know this if you've experienced a cancer diagnosis, you've been in a bad car accident, you've had a heart attack, or you've been near a heart attack. You, you know what this is like, right? Before it was just a day. But now it might be my last day. Before it was just another Christmas with my children, but now, now it's, my children almost didn't know me. I can't believe I get to experience this. That the nearness of death magnifies the sweetness of life. It comes with its trauma, sure. It comes with its own issues. It doesn't fix everything. But I'm telling you, it makes you appreciate what you couldn't have appreciated before. And this is a glimpse into what it's supposed to be like. The experience of a Christian. When we fully wrap our minds around the gospel. When we fully wrap our minds around the fact that we were just a bunch of bones laying in a field that had no hope. We have been raised and we have been raised to be raised forever. That the neutrality of the, the neutralizing of the sting of death is meant to magnify for us the sweetness of life. And more specifically, magnify for us the sweetness of life with Jesus. Because we have experienced God's power. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Ezekiel? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of those resurrected bones standing there now shoulder to shoulder with an army looking around like, whoa, what happened? Like, like I mean, like, what's going on? Like, I thought I was dead. Last thing I saw, Nebuchadnezzar's bearing down, and here I am standing. You think they're like, well, uh, I don't know if this old God thing's going to work out for me. No, they would have been filled with exuberance and joy and enthusiasm. Like, my goodness, what has happened? And what they would have recognized is that no skeleton has ever self-rescued. The dead can't raise the dead. Only the one who is mighty, only the one who is living, only the one who is able, is able to do it. And he said to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And doggone it, here those bones are living. Seven times in the passage, seven times in the first 14 verses, God says, I will. I will open your graves. I will bring, oh, you know what, I'm not going to circle that because I dropped my pencil. I will open your graves. I will bring you into life. I will raise you from your graves. I will put my spirit within you. I will place you in your own land. I am the Lord and I will do it. Seven times throughout the text, God says, I will do it. And you know what he says? I will do it for what reason? That you shall live. That you shall know me. 
that you shall walk in the fullness of my spirit. In other words, what he's saying is I will do it so that you will have the spirit and you will have the spirit and now you can keep the covenant. Now you can live in obedience to the Lord. Now you can be holy. Church, you need to hear that. You're living in habitual sin and it's hard to break those habits. It's hard, but you can. You don't have to live with a pornography addiction. You can break it. You can be holy. You don't have to live as an angry person. You can be gentle. You have a spirit of gentleness. You have to live out of control. You have a spirit of self-control. You you don't have to live with this out-of-control materialism. You can. You can do it because God has placed his spirit. He has resurrected you and made you someone new. You can be holy. And what you will find is that the opposite of all the lies your flesh has told you is actually the truth. That now you can enjoy God's plan. That he envisions them coming back into the promised land. He envisions them coming back into the promised land and being able to enjoy the promised land. The land that flows with milk and honey without the threat of ever losing it again. He envisions them coming back in there and being able to know that we are saved and we are safe. And we are safe now forever. That they will be able to know they're saved because they're going to live a holy life. They're going to live a holy life, not because they have to. Because they get to. They've been saved to. See, there's a, there's a nuance that happens among the church, I think. Is that many of us come to believe that Jesus' way is right, but I'm not always sure that we think and are convinced that it's better. I'm not always sure that we think that it's better. The reason that we have a different view of sexuality than Jesus is because we aren't sure that, we might say, that's right, but I'm not sure that it's best. The reason that we have a different view of money than Jesus is because we might say, that I know what Jesus says, I know what I ought to do, I know that he says it's right, but I'm not sure that it's better. We have a different view of the way that we should lead our kids or approach our jobs or a different view of the way that we should engage in our marriage. And we look at that and we think, God, I know what you say and I know that that's probably right, but I'm not sure that it's better. Look at the skeletons in your life and see the story that they're telling you. Look at the skeletons in your life and see the story that they're telling you. See, all of your life, your flesh is trying to convince you that God's way is unreasonable. And God's way is miserable. And God's way leads to bondage. But what Jesus has come to blow into you, the breath of the Holy Spirit, is to open up your eyes and say, Lord, I see that your way is not only right, but your way is better. That I had bought lies. That there is a reason that you've defined sexuality the way that you've defined it. And there's a reason that you've approached money the way that you've approached it. And there's a reason that you've taught about anger the way that you've taught it. There's a reason because my way doesn't work and the world's way doesn't work and it's all lies that lead to skeletons but your way, your way leads to life. Can I ask you to believe that? Do you believe that Jesus' way is not only right but it's better? Well, if you believe that, I'm not saying you're all the way there but a miracle has taken place. You've been raised from the valley of dry bones. I wonder if this morning, there's somebody here, and this morning your eyes have been opened. You look across your life, and it's a cemetery of skeletons. And you wonder, how on earth can these bones live? You cry out with Israel, and you say, I am hopeless. This morning, if you believe that, and you see that Jesus' way is not just right, Jesus' way is better, that God has come not just to make you do better, but to make you somebody new. This morning, would you come and be baptized? The way that these were, all you have to do is come talk to one of the elders, you can... 
look at the back of the tell me more card. You can check that. You can put coffee with an elder. You can say baptism. We'll follow up with you. This morning, I wonder if you're a Christian. But the Lord has revealed to you areas of your life in which you're buying lies that are leading to skeletons. Areas of your life in which you don't believe that God can. Would you come and lay those on the altar? Would you let the dead bones begin to rattle as God blows his spirit over us? Let me pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.